0: we're going we're to look at a really famous incident in the Bible. Every person who's ever gone to Sunday school for any length of time has no, no doubt heard this story, but it's a great story about God speaking to a man out of a bush that's on fire and what he tells him about who he is. And so if you've got your Bibles, Exodus chapter 3 begins this way. Now Moses Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that indeed you would enlarge our perspective on who you are. That we would lift our eyes from this world and the concerns of the weak and the the things that we face day by day. That we would take the focus off of ourselves and lift it to you. That we would think much of you and little of you of the world and ourselves that we might follow you fearlessly and obediently and with great joy because we love you who first loved us we pray in Jesus name amen well this chapter begins with a reminder in case we forgot of where Moses is when you start reading his story it starts out you you start to think it's maybe going to be a story Kind of like Joseph. You know, Joseph's story starts out good and then it gets worse and then it gets worse and then it gets worse and then it gets a lot better. And he, you know, he goes from being the favorite son to being sold into slavery and then being falsely accused and going into prison and then giving a little glimmer of hope where you think, oh, he's going to get out of prison. He's able to interpret the dreams of the chief baker the and the, uh, the cupbearer to the Pharaoh and they forget about him for years and then he winds up just overnight prime Minister of Egypt and he's able to bless his family and there's this long process of, by which reconciliation comes about between he and his brothers even the very ones who sold him into slavery and it's this great thing right and you think oh this is cool. Moses' story starts out kind of bad, and then it gets worse as he's on the, he's, he's this little baby in a boat out in the water of the Nile along the edges, uh, in, in the, out in the, the reeds there along the, the banks of the Nile. And then he's adopted as Pharaoh's daughter, and you think, oh, this is going to be a great story. And then at the end of chapter 2, you find out, no, nope, no. Nope, nope. He's uh, running for his life, has to go flee into the wilderness. He's rejected by his own people. He's rejected, he's, uh, he's, he's no longer able to call himself the son of Pharaoh's daughter because he's identified with the Hebrew slaves. And he's regarded as a traitor, has to run for his life from Egypt. He has, he's a man with no people, with no country. He gets adopted into this family of sheep herders and Midian. And I have to tell you that for 40 years, he's Prince of Egypt. Life is good. And then, he goes from Prince in the world's leading civilization and empire to spending 40 years as a nomadic shepherd working for his father-in-law. Now, that's quite a come down. You know, every man's great ambition is getting married and having to take a job working for her father, right? That's what everybody really looks forward to and an- anticipates with great eagerness and joy, right? He Not so much. He spends 40 years wandering around in the wilderness in Arabia with a bunch of stinky, stupid sheep. And every day... Imagine this, every day you get up and you go, well, what are we going to do today? Oh, okay, Uh, all right, well, one item on the to-do list, lead the sheep to another piece of pasture, and then every day, you know, the next day you get up, well, what are we going to do today? Well, it's dawn, you got to go check on the sheep, take them to fresh pasture. Maybe one of the ewes is about to give birth. I've got to help her out with that. That's gross. Um, (laughs) You know, that's the highlight of your week, right? Uh, This is what he's doing for a job, working for his father-in-law as a shepherd, leading a flock of sheep around the desert, helping ewes give birth, going to fresh pasture. And then one day, 40 years of doing this. I, I turned 40 this last August. can't imagine having that as my job every day for as long as I've been alive. I, I just can't imagine. And one day, he's out on the backside of the desert, out on the west side of the Arabian Peninsula near Mount Horeb. And he looks and he sees... A bush that's on fire. Now, your entertainment, when you're a sheep herder, you got to take your entertainment where you can find it. You know, this is this is a day, young people. I realize that you know this is this is you know foreign to you. But there was a day before Angry Birds, um, <laughs> and and Amazon Kindles and all this kind of thing. They're, they just didn't have that, right? And you wander around, and this is, you know, taking care of the sheep is your job. And you get up, and you spend the whole day with them. Then you go to sleep, and if there's a thunderstorm, you have to sing to them so they don't run off in terror. Um, And, you know, this is what you do. And so, hey, there's a bush on fire. I'll go watch it burn. (laughs) And as he gets closer, he realizes the bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. Well, that's unusual. And so he gets a little bit closer, and suddenly there's a voice speaking out of the midst of the fire. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. Now imagine, you spent 40 years taking care of these sheep. And all of a sudden, something totally unexpected happens. I mean, first, you're not expecting to hear anybody's voice out there. You're out there in the middle of nowhere. Or if it's not the middle of nowhere, you can definitely see it from where he is. (laughs) And, And all of a sudden, God is speaking out of the flame of fire. And he's startled. And God tells him, take off your sandals. Why? What's, what's the sandal thing? What's that about? In m- many cultures around the world, your sandals are regarded as an unclean thing, and ver- they are very often are. A lot of those cultures do not have asphalt or concrete or penned um, livestock or you know some of the other niceties of civilization, and so your feet are filthy a lot of in a lot of those places, and so you do not wear your shoes into the house. Because you leave what is dirty outside. And God is telling Moses, if you want to come into my presence, you're going to have to remove all the things that are dirty about you. And so take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy. You're coming into my presence. God's, going into God's presence requires removing what is unclean. And God speaks, and He reveals His identity, who it is that's speaking to Him. And God's self-identification is interesting. You'll see this, this same sort of description repeated three times in, the, in this chapter. I am the God of your father. In other words, hey Moses, remember him? I know it's been a while. It's been about 80 years since you've seen your dad. But I was the God of your, fa- I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Why, why that description? Probably because after 40 years in exile, Moses have not only forgotten who he is, he's forgotten who God is. And his parents' stories of God's covenant with, with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and with them. Seem like childhood stories from a long, long, long time ago, far away, in another place, in another time. And he's forgotten about God's identity as the covenant maker who is keeping his covenant with the patriarchs, even in Moses' own day. And so Moses has the appropriate reaction when he is confronted, though, with the living and holy God. He covers his face. Not in shame but in reverence, because all of a sudden he realizes where he is and whose presence he is standing in, and he is in holy fear of God Almighty. And God has a lot more to say, so we want to read on. Uh, And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, If you look back at at, at the end of chapter 2, in fact, flip back there with me the end of chapter 2, what you see in verses 23 through 25 is four verbs about God's response to Israel's slavery. You see that he heard, that he remembered his covenant, that he saw the people, and he knew. Now look back over here, chapter 3. Look at what God tells Moses. I have surely seen, I have heard, I know their suffering. I have seen their oppression. And what does God promise to do? To bring them out of Egypt to the promised land. Why? Because it's part of His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God's promises are being fulfilled. And that tells tells us that He has not forgotten His covenant, but has remembered and is keeping it. Amen? Look at what else God says. God says, if I can bring it into the vernacular, he says, Moses, come on, boy, I'm sending you to get my people and bring them out of Egypt. And Moses is shocked. He's like, me? I'm like one old man out here in the desert. Me? Who Who am I? What's one old dude against the world's lone superpower? Are you kidding me? He's like, he's got to be thinking something like this. Sure, Lord, why not just ask me to flap my arms really hard and fly there? I mean, there's no way that simply by virtue of showing up that I'm going to be able to convince Pharaoh to let his slaves go. Have you forgotten? By the way, last time I checked, the Pharaoh wanted me dead and the Israelites wanted no part of following me as their leader. What he says is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, you've got to be kidding me. What are you thinking, God? I'm an 80-year-old guy, an exiled shepherd who works for his father-in-law. Me? But look at what the Lord says. Look at the verse. What's he say? Verse 12. It's a great response. But I will be with you. I will be with you. Let me translate that into terms we all understand. Moses, have you forgotten who you are talking to? Remember, I'm the living God. Against me, even the power of Egypt doesn't amount to anything measurable. In fact, let me tell you in advance, this, is, this plan is going to work. This is, this is the sign I'm going to give you. Not anything you're going to see before it happens, but after it happens, you're going to get back to this mountain and you're going to worship me right here in this same spot at this bush, and you're going to know that I was there and that I showed up for you in a big way. Because he, here's the issue. Moses thought that what really mattered in the plan of God is who He was. And God says, no, what really matters in my plan is who I am. And who I am matters most because I'm going to be with you. And you think it's a big deal for me to send you down to Pharaoh? I can turn out Pharaoh's light like that. Not a problem. I can deal with Pharaoh. I'm sending you. And when you get back here, you're going to worship me in this spot. And I love this passage. I love this passage because there's two truths I think that it teaches us. You know, and I, I tried to remind us of this last week, and I couldn't find the reference, but I, I looked it up. I found it. In Job chapter 10, verse 4, Job is in the depths of his suffering, and he cries out to God, and he says, Do you have eyes of flesh? Do your eyes see? And when we're suffering, it's easy to think that the answer to that question is no, that God doesn't see us, He doesn't hear our prayers, He doesn't care about us much at all. But the God who speaks from the burning bush, what He tells Moses and what He is telling you and I is this, that He's not just a God who is holy and powerful and able to do some really interesting and exciting and powerful things. He's also the God who is present. He is the God who is with us in the midst of it all. And He's not simply present. He's present to powerfully aid and to come to the rescue and to carry out the plans that He has for us through us. And there may be, in fact, a lot of things that are way too hard for us, but there's nothing too hard for Him. And we might... If we think about the task that is ahead of us, think, who am I that I should do this? But the reality is that's the wrong question. Not who am I, it's who is God who is with me in the midst of these things? And knowing not only what the right answer to the question is, but him who is the answer we are able to see our suffering in the right perspective. That God is there with me. That on top of that, the things that He has called me to do, though they are way too big for me, like as an example, when I think about reaching 2018 people in the next five years, I go, oh Jesus, if you don't show up in a big way, we're in a heap of trouble. (laughs) Okay, and And then I think, but you know what? I know that God has called us to share the gospel with the lost in our community. And because of that, I have every confidence that God is going to show up for us in a big way. And that task is way too big for us, way too big. It's a big, hairy, audacious goal that we have nevertheless set and thought, you know what? God is... God is going to be honored in this, and we want to do it, honor Him. But it's too big for us to do. But not unless, God, but unless God shows up, in which case, it's perfectly obtainable. Perfectly obtainable, because God, is the same God who went with Moses down to Pharaoh, and that was a much more difficult task. Same God who went with. Moses down to Pharaoh is the same God who's with us today, who's with us in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our circumstances, who sees and remembers and knows what we go through and who keeps covenant with us and who shows up for us when we depend on him. Amen? All right, let's move on here in the text. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people, this is where the excuse making starts on Moses not wanting to go. and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And when you go, you shall shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so shall you plunder the Egyptians. Moses got the point, at least a little bit. It's going to take him another whole chapter to decide that he's going. We'll look at that next week. What matters most, though, is who God is. And he asks, therefore, another question Who are you? What's your name? He knows that the living God is speaking, but either it's been too long of a time, or he's never really known the Lord personally before this. And in an ancient culture like Moses', your name was not just an identifier. It was considered an important part of you, something that revealed, excuse me, something of your character and nature. So when Moses is asking God's name, uh, he is wanting to know something about who God, who God is, who what His nature is like. What describe to me, kind of God that you are, with your name. And God reveals His name. He says that I am the I am in Hebrew it's the it's the noun Yahweh and it's related to the Hebrew verb Hayah which is the the verb for existence it's the verb that means to be to exist the verb uh, in other words God is taking that word and making it his name and saying, I am the God who exists. I'm the only one who is. And everything uh, relative to me exists in the present. For God, God exists outside of time. And so he exists in his own eternal present tense. And there, He is there before time, and He is there at the end of all time when it's all rolled up like a robe. He exists outside of it. If you contemplate that a little bit, it will really make your head explode. But, but God exists outside of time, and He sees the end from the beginning. And He sees all of human history laid out before Him. And all of the trillions of contingent possibilities of all of our decisions before they've happened in our perspective he already sees them in the eternal present of his existence and so so he introduces himself and by the way Jesus makes a big point of this later in the New Testament that he says I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob how is that possible because these men are not dead are with God, therefore, they are still alive. But notice how God introduces Himself. He says He introduced Himself first to Moses by saying, "I'm the God of your father." He says, "When you go to the people of Israel, tell them you're the God of that that the God of their fathers has spoken to them. And when you go to the elders, say the God of your fathers has spoken to them. And be sure to identify Me by My name." The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who is, the only God who exists. Because in this culture, in this time, there's a lot of things that claim to be gods. You know, e- Egypt had their whole pantheon. They had Ra, the sun god. They had, uh, they had Set, the god of death and darkness. They had Sobek, the god of, the, of crocodiles who swam in the Nile. They had a god named for the Nile. They had, uh, they had Isis and Osiris and Horus and uh, Sekhmet and uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of gods. They had a goddess who was the, god of, uh, the a goddess of childbirth who had the body of a woman and the head of a frog. Uh, I don't know what that has to do with giving birth. But nevertheless, they had a goddess that you would pray to. And against all of these, this backdrop, against all of this pagan background, God says, I am the only God there is. I'm the only one with a legit claim on existence. And that's the name he wants to be known by. Whenever you see that, that word, Lord... In your Old Testament okay wherever it says capital L and then there's a smaller capital uh, o capital R capital D that's this Hebrew word Lord Yahweh the God who is the I am that's why it was so scandalous when Jesus said things like this I am the bread of life Before Abraham was, I am. I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, that might not seem so scandalous to you because you go, well, you just, you know, it's just a noun, verb, sentence. What's the big deal? Because to a Jewish person, this is the name of God, and they did not pronounce it. They, whatever there was, whatever it was written in Hebrew, they would put in the vowels, the little symbols underneath the letters for another word, the word Adonai, which means Master, so that you would remember not to pronounce the name of God, which was regarded as too holy to say. He's the I Am, the God of their fathers, the God who keeps covenant with his people. And after and after Moses introduces himself, he's to go gather the elders and make this announcement. And God tells Moses in advance, by the way, when you get there, Pharaoh is not going to let the people go. You're to tell him, we want to make a three-day journey into the desert to sacrifice to our God. Now, notice what he does not say. And then we're going to come back and serve you as slaves. <laughs> he never says that. He says, we're going to make a three-day journey into the desert And offer sacrifices to God. You know why? Because God's purpose in revealing himself. And in delivering people out of slavery. Is that they might worship him. That's the whole point of the book of Exodus. It begins in slavery. And then in the middle there's deliverance. And then at the end there's worship. And by the way, that is the same story that God still enacts today, doesn't it? Right? If you study the Bible, one of the things that you need to ask whenever you look at the scriptures and you study it is you need to ask yourself, why is this text here? What is God teaching me? What is God trying to tell me about it? What can I learn about God? What can I learn about his plans, about myself, about sin, about the about salvation, about the Christian life from this passage. And you know why this text is here? So God can reveal Himself to us and tell us about His holy power, about His presence when we're in difficulty, about His promises and how He keeps them, and about His provision for His people. Because does God make provision for His people? He tells them, hey, get ready to get rich get ready to collect 400 years of back wages from all of your neighbors because this is going to happen there you just to go go around house to house to the Egyptians and instead of a canned food drive it's a you know bags of jewelry drive (laughs) give us some stuff because we're leaving and they do and God provides for his people and we need to know when we read this passage, and what we're supposed to learn here out of this is, first of all, that God is holy, and therefore that nothing unclean can enter into His presence. It can't, there can't be anything unclean outside of us. There can't be anything unclean inside of us, and nevertheless come into His presence. We need to know that God is powerful, that God is not just able to make a bush burn, With fire that somehow doesn't consume it. He isn't just able to speak from the fire. But he is a God who is able to do much greater and much more impossible things than that. Like delivering people out of slavery. And bringing them into a promised land in keeping with his covenant. And by the way God still does that. He still does that. God delivers people out of slavery to sin and its consequences death and hell and snatches us from the domain of the devil who is a much worse much worse oppressor than dusty old pharaoh ever claimed to be and we are delivered to a land much better than Canaan on its best day we need this passage because we need to remember that God is present with us just as he was Promise to be with Moses. Remember the last thing that Jesus says in Matthew? Remember? Very last line. Let me bring it to you literally what it says. It says, Behold, I am with you. And the text reads, Every day to the end of the ages. From now until eternity. Is over. When does eternity end? Well, never. Okay, so from now to forever, I am always. This is how it's usually translated. I'm always with you. Always with you. Including when I do when this happens, yes. Including when that happens, yes. Including when I die, yes, including when I'm sick. Yes. Including when I want to die because I'm sick. Yes. Including when my spouse leaves me. Yes. Including when my finances burn down. Yes. Including when my family wants nothing to do with me. Yes. Including when I don't have a friend in the world. Yes. Including when I go to prison for the cause of Jesus. Yes. Every day. To the very End of the age. God is present with us. And he t- that's the most important thing he tells Moses in two chapters. I am and I am with you. Not I was, not I will be, I am, and I'm with you. And you know what else? This text reminds us that God provides. God provides rich blessings for those who are in covenant with him. Did the Israelites get compensated for their time in Egypt? You better believe it. They got compensated so well that they built the tabernacle out of the surplus of what they had. Of all and we're going to read about it, the, the stuff that they had was was unbelievable quantities of silver and gold that they would have had to bring to contribute to this and in fact they had so much of it that Moses finally told them stop bringing stuff we've got more than we need they they had provision that was beyond what they could imagine and by the way does god still do that yes do you think that that somehow that when your life is over. That you will have no reward. If you were in covenant with God. Sometimes we forget that we do. Sometimes we think. You know well God doesn't see. And he doesn't know. And he doesn't realize. What all I'm going through down here. And he doesn't understand how difficult it is. Sometimes to be a follower of Jesus. In a culture which mocks that. And how difficult it is to continue to do the right thing day after day after day after day when you do not see necessarily much blessing and benefit and reward. But God sees. And let me tell you that the God who made sure that the Egyptians were plundered and that their wealth was carried out of Egypt in vast quantity, Able to reward. You remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? Kingdom, heaven. Now I've read the end of the book and I've seen it described. It's a city that has twelve gates, and each gate is made of a single pearl. Now I don't know. How many of you guys have been to the jewelry store lately? Okay. Uh, Valentine's Day is Friday, by the way. Okay. (laughs) In case any of you need some encouragement, uh, this is your reminder. All right. You can thank me later. Um, But think about that. A pearl big enough that you can make a gate out of it. Massive. I don't know what kind of an oyster it comes out of, but it's humongous. Right? Right? And all I know is the ones that are about the size of a BB. You get a little strand of those are about eight hundred dollars, right? And this is what we're using for the equivalent of what we would use as cast iron today. In our world. And and the Bible describes streets that are you know our equivalent would be asphalt, which is hot tar and gravel, right? And the streets are paved the scripture says, with gold. One of the most valuable things in our world. Do you think we get a reward? God says, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall, what? Inherit the earth. Not just one little strip of, of dusty ground along the Mediterranean Sea on the east side. The earth is yours. God is holy, and powerful, and protects, and is present and provides. Amen? And all those things that God does in our lives are meant to do for us the same thing that God intended for the Israelites to do when they saw the same thing. Worship. Worship the God who is and does all these things. So I'm going to pray, and then, Tony, if you would help us worship the King. All right? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your abundant provision. We thank you for your greatness and goodness and love and presence with us and provision beyond anything we can imagine. Father, you are a great King. And you are the great lover who pursues us from heaven. All the way back to heaven with you, and Father, we cannot thank you enough. And so, in an attempt, somehow, to give you honor, we we declare your greatness and your goodness and our love for you, which is small in comparison, but it's all we got, Father. We offer you our best. We pray.